You are listening to the Enormo Cast. The Enormo Cast presents La Sportiva Legends. Welcome to the lineup of the most legendary climbing shoes ever made. The performance majesty of the Mira, the OG downturned innovation of the Testarossa, the El Cap dominance of the TC Pro, the precision power of the solution, and that brilliant all-arounder, the Mythos. All legends, all still leading the pack, all of them immortal. 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 And now, coming in spring 2022, the venerable Katana Lesov gets an update to legend status. So many legendary shoes, it's easy to forget that Sportiva is still innovating with legends in the making like the indoor dominating theory. So if the word legend is something that makes you want to buy shoes, check out both the new and legendary at Sportiva.com or your favorite shop. You're good enough, you're smart enough, and you deserve a legend. Did I say legend enough? You think they got it? All right. That's a wrap. In this topsy-turvy world, where we are presented with one divisive issue after another, the Enormacast has always believed that we, as a global community of climbers striving for a more perfect world, can agree on one simple thing. Titanium on a baseball hat is fucking cool. OG Enormacast sponsor Peter W. Gilroy came upon this simple, obvious truth during a fever dream some years ago and started producing his amazing splitter hats with mountain-inspired titanium plaques to universal acclaim. That's right, folks. Titanium on hats. Don't believe that's possible or don't believe you can handle it? Don't be absurd. After all, you sent the yellow root on your second try last Tuesday, you sick little bird. So reward yourself or a loved one and go check out all of Peter's mountain-inspired accessories and jewelry, and yes, splitter hats, over at PeterWGilroy.com and enter Enormo at checkout for a discount and to help the Enormacast. That's PeterWGilroy.com. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, the big place. That's, it out. That's a big nice. place. You sold oh, it out. I'll see. You really should. The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a frayed end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Enormal Cast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is 
March 16th, about 10.30 a.m. Mountain Daylight Time, 2022. And this is episode 238 of the Enormacast, a conversation with Tommy Caldwell. The return of Tommy Caldwell on the Enormacast. He was on episode 100. And at the time, he was kind of miffed that uh, I waited that long to have him on the show, which actually kind of made me feel good <laughs> that I'd gotten under Tommy's skin. But yeah, I've been holding on to this one for a couple months. The Dirtbag State of Mind guys put out an interview with Tommy back in January, so no reason to pile on each other. You'll want to go back and listen to that one too. But yeah, I had a few things I wanted to get out beforehand also, including TAPS, obviously, and uh, Malik Martin's interview, which I thought was was excellent. He did an incredible job. And um, also Anna Hazelnut, wanted to get her done too. You know, it's funny with Tommy, it's like I'm so familiar with Tommy uh, just personally, but also uh, his story. I think we're all pretty familiar with it because he's so upfront. You know, he's not sort of like a, a careerist. He doesn't sort of push and promote himself the way some other climbers do. So, you know, I don't feel so bad putting him on the back burner. I know him. I know his family. I trade parenting stories with his wife, Becca, on occasion. So, um, yeah, familiar guy. And um, this interview is actually kind of like that. We're we're just talking and chatting, which, you know, is kind of my game. It's what I try to do to be a little different than just a, a question and answer type thing. But this one is very Marin, I thought. I've admitted many, many times how I ripped my entire format off Mark Marin. And there's like a manicness to the way I start this thing uh, that I think is very kind of old school Marin. We were at Tommy's house. It was kind of late at night. We were out in his van freezing our asses off, actually. And I just kind of went in hot. I don't know. Maybe I'd been thinking about it too much all day. So, yeah, maybe play the first half on like half speed or three quarter speed. And I won't sound so crazy. But it's a fun interview. We laugh a lot. And, uh, of course, Tommy's the man. He really is. He really is. It ain't, it ain't fake. Speaking of promoting your career, I would like to promote that I'm going to finally be a keynote speaker at the International Climbers Festival in Lander, Wyoming this summer. It is going to happen. I don't know. Actually, I should look that up real quick. Hold on. Okay, it's good. I, I should know when I'm supposed to be in Lander. It's uh, the 14th through the 17th of July. Tickets are not on sale or they are on sale? No, they are not on sale yet. So I'm just putting it in your brain so you can get, get on it and plan your summer around maybe being in Lander for that weekend. It's a lot of fun. I'm very psyched to be there. I've been going for years. I think I've been to at least seven, but probably more than that. I know climbing festivals turn some people off because there's so many people there you can't go climbing, but you don't go to them for the climbing, weirdly. You go there for the fun, for the tribe, for the community. So if you're interested in that, stay tuned for when tickets go on sale by going to climbersfestival.org. Do it. Come up and see me talk <laughs> as if you haven't had enough of that. Coincidentally, I have a very funny story about a Tommy Caldwell and family interaction at the International Climbers Festival in Lander. Maybe I'll put it in my presentation. Or maybe if you just hit me up at Lander Bar, I'll just tell it to you. We can have a good chuckle at my expense. Because me and a bunch of other people are the heels in the story, in the face of Tommy's graciousness. <laughs> good story. That's called a teaser in the biz. Okay, speaking of that, why don't we get to this interview with Tommy Caldwell. Have you heard of this guy?
Climbing girls and boys know that Indian Creek season is upon us, which means only one thing. More profile pics of people doing yoga in front of desert sunsets. But what it really means is we're talking about camps. Where the hell are we going to get enough camps? The Black Diamond Camelot still reigns supreme when it comes to plugging up those mega splitters with more swagger than a crusty lifer lapping incredible handcrack for the 140th time. Wait, that might be me. Anyway, Camelots, Ultralight or Not, are the go-to cam in the Des and beyond. You know it, I know it, even the guidebook knows it. So if you want to bang out the last 10 feet to the chains with confidence, go to blackdiamondequipment.com or your local shop and get a few to throw on the gear pile as you and your friends get ready for yet another best day ever in the creek. And remember, when you support Black Diamond, you support the Enormacast. So um, we're just going to start with a, a previously on the Enormacast with Tommy Caldwell. Yeah, I don't remember what we talked about. Well, that's why I'm going to fill you in right now. <laughs> yeah. So it happened on May, or I put it out anyway, on March 7th, 2016, and which means that your daughter had just been born. Oh, yeah. Right? Good. This is five days after her birthday, I think. Oh, wow. We recorded it just before that. Oh, before she was born. Yeah, because you were awaiting that. You mentioned it in the podcast. And then it was about a year after the Dawn Wall. Because it was this, it had, yeah, the anniversary was in January, and and we, I think it was in February that you came by, which means that you had uh, done the Fitz Traverse because that was before. Because I got confused about that during the um, during the actual interview, I was like, when did that happen? And then um, the media hype was kind of dying down a little bit about the Don Wall. We mm-hmm. talked a little bit about that. I was probably in the depths of writing my book just then, huh? Uh, probably. I don't think it was brought up. Oh, really? We didn't talk about it? No. Yeah, that was a little bit of a dark period, honestly. Really? If, if, if the timing matches up the way I think it did, I just remember. Well, you mentioned that you hadn't climbed outdoors really in several months, if not almost a year. That's why, yeah. Yeah. I was like, I was totally obsessed with trying to make that good. Yeah, yeah. That That's what we talked about. We talked about how like you were just gonna, you are taking all the opportunities with the Don Wall hype and going for it and you're probably working on your book i don't maybe you did mention that. i don't i don't i don't remember but yeah so that's that's positioning uh episode number 100 which uh was your tommy caldwell one so so i'm thinking about what's happened since then and the interesting that's happened since then is that the movie came out because it took a long time for the dawn wall movie to come out yeah like four years or something right yeah yeah yeah, so it's like you were, we were talking about the hype, and then I'm sure it went away, and then it came back. Yes, definitely did. Yeah, the movie, everybody watches TV, as it turns out. You know, <laughs> Still today, every day, every day I run into somebody that's like, I saw the movie. Well, and it's, it, yeah. that was the interesting thing, is like I was trying to think about conflating the two, because the movie came out, and it's like it reignited everything, but it was a solid like three years or four years later. But it feels like that's when it happened. That's when you climbed the thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I yeah. mean, it's all the people that were like that knew the dawn, that followed along on the whole process when Kevin and I were doing it. It mm-hmm. happened when it happened. But right. to all the rest of the world that weren't climbers, because that movie and Free Solo exposed like you know zillions of people to climbing that had never known about climbing. And right. So, yeah, that's when it happened. Yeah, and that was an interesting thing too that um, that happened is that uh, you know we we thought that the hype that came with the dawn wall it's ascent and the movie was like the biggest deal in climbing. And then like, boom, the fricking, you know, the meteor, the meteor struck and Alex Honnold's movie came out. (laughs) 
And then we were just like, holy shit, like yeah, this yeah. is what real like hype is about right now, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah, and that has changed climbing. I mean, it's really yeah. like climbing is very different after that, mm-hmm. I feel like. Like I was just at Honold's wedding, his post-COVID wedding. You know, he had like a COVID wedding. Right. And then I just went to his post-COVID wedding and it was like, everybody was just nice. It was at his like nice house and uh, Calico Basin. And mm-hmm. there's just like, you know, obviously money. And I was sitting there talking to um, Jenny uh, Lowe. And she's like, man, climbing has changed so much. Like just watching, looking around, seeing everybody in suits, like hanging around around this pool. Yeah, <laughs> she's just like, man, climbing is so different. Well, that's a whole, that's a whole kind of like thing that maybe we a, a sort of tangent I've been thinking about because the uh, another celebrity wedding just happened on uh, Instagram. Anyway, yeah, um, Emily and Adrian. Yeah, it's, yeah, and it's funny because I'm like, are, that's a, we're like we're like TMZ people now. Where we, <laughs> <laughs> we sort of get to see this fabulous life of these celebrity climbers. We get this little window into it, you know, like, and it's just kind of a strange notion. Well, one thing I remember from our first um, normal cast interview is like Beth and me were the first celebrity couple of, I remember you saying that yeah, yeah. and I'd never really thought of it that right. way, you know, but now it's very different. <laughs> yeah, it's very different. You guys are, yeah. But yeah, we did talk about that in the spotlight, you know, and, and I remember we talked about like what the spotlight sort of did. Um, negatively in, in that in that relationship. So, but yeah. So then you know what? Pretty much nothing's happened since then, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. It's, I feel like lots happened. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. So I I I kind of have a list of a lot of things that have happened. Um. And I don't know where you want to start or if, if you do, but tell me a little bit about like. Uh, we will do the fit. Let's talk about the movie. Um, it seems like it's ancient history now because again, I think like it felt like everything accelerated to, uh, when, when free solo came out too, in that whole year, like this whole change in climbing, like accelerated in this weird way. But talk about a little bit about that film and its reception and, um, and, and how that kind of like affected you and threw you back into the spotlight. When the movie came out, it didn't feel like the same kind of whirlwind that, that I experienced right after Kevin and I finished the Don wall. Like that was crazy. That was so insane right after the Don wall. And it felt like a toned down version mm-hmm. in a way, but it was much more long lasting because people can just go on Netflix or go on iTunes and watch it. So even to this day, I get people coming up to me like almost daily and like wanting to talk about that movie mm-hmm. and then therefore wanting to talk about free solo. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, that's great. Actually, that's so great. Yeah. That, Cause I, I've made all these jokes after free solo came out, like, you know, how like free solo made us all have to have these discussions with our like grandparents about how we don't free solo. Yeah. You know, it's like, do you do that, honey? Is that what you do? <laughs> you know, it's like everyone had to go to Christmas or whatever and be like, no grandma, I use ropes or whatever. You know what I mean? Like every climber had to have that conversation with their family. Well, I feel like there are so many climbers that. So I'm glad you did too. Well, there are so many climbers that like their their family or their friends saw free solo and they're like, "You're crazy. Why do you do that?" And they're like, "No, that's not all right. climbing. Like you should watch the Dawn, Dawn Wall." <laughs> that's more. That's a little bit more like what I do. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. 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 And um, I mean, but how how was your reaction to the film? How involved in the production of it were you i mean i was not that involved in right. the pro- obviously i got interviewed I and got stuff that but that you, yeah yeah i remember 
they were making the film while I was writing my book. And I just remember when I was writing my book, one thing that I was, that I, one realization I came to is that I couldn't consult everybody. Like I had to just keep the, you know, I had like three or four people that read the book and gave me feedback. And even that sort of dumbed down the power in some ways, like you want to keep the, like to have a powerful movie come out, you don't want to have too many cooks in the kitchen. And I was like the worst one to weigh in on it. So I basically told them, and I think they probably felt this way too, that I didn't want to see any parts of it beforehand. And so the first time I saw it was in the theater the night it premiered. Oh yeah. And where was that? I was in Boulder. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Because they did this weird thing where it premiered in like 250 theaters across the country all on one day. Yeah. And so I watched it at one of the theaters. What was your, yeah. Tell me about that experience. I mean, Fitz was there. He was like watching it along with Becca and I, um, I guess Ingrid probably was too, but she was too young to remember it. And, um, I felt like they did a tremendous job and I've worked with the center films guys for like my entire climbing life basically. So I really trusted them a lot and I was impressed by how they did it, but it didn't feel any different than, than the experience, which made me feel like it was good. Like they, there was nothing about that movie that I was like, that feels off or that doesn't feel like how it happened in reality. And I actually felt that way about Free Solo, too. Like, I was like, this is a good movie because the queasiness that I feel right now is exactly the same as the queasiness that I felt when I was going down. And so, yeah, the Don Wall movie was kind of similar. I was like, they did a great job. Like, they just portrayed how it felt and how it went down. And, yeah, it was really good. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you're, you're um, like, sort of outside feedback from the world. I mean, it seemed like everybody loved it. Everybody loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still waiting for somebody to like do a takedown piece. <laughs> you know? I feel like that happens to anybody that's in sort of like a high profile position, but it hasn't happened to me yet. Right. I mean, know? I was just talking to Nile Grimes about, about like the, you know, the idea of taking the piss out of each other and how that's like a, it's actually, you know, you can get pissed off, but it's actually sort of the sign of respect. So yeah, somebody needs to do that, man. Kind of. Yeah, yeah I just did this um, this summer. I spent a week with this guy William Finnegan, who wrote a piece for oh, the yeah, New Yorker. Oh yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Great. Yeah, he's he was an awesome guy. But he throughout this week, he told me like story after story after story of people that he had spent time with and did profiles on that wouldn't speak to him anymore. So I was kind of like, this is going to be the takedown piece. <laughs> really? Know? He's got to do it. He's going to dig into the depths of my life, which I was like, I don't know what those are. But it wasn't. It was kind of. Yeah. No, it wasn't. It was, no. it was not a takedown piece at all. No. What was that like hanging out with, with Bill Finnegan? I mean, he's like my writing idol, right. first of all. Yeah, when yeah. He Barbarian con- Days. Yeah, yeah, Barbarian Days Forget is one it. of the best books ever. Yeah. And so when he contacted me, he's friends with Russ Clune, who I know quite oh, well. Oh, shit. I didn't know that. Yeah. And he's gotten into climbing. That's why his daughter is super into climbing. This is kind of why he was interested in my story, because he's gotten to know climbing. Oh, this is good news. Through his daughter. This is good news, but I'll get into why. Yeah. And um, so when he contacted me, I was like, oh, my God, like he's he's like a 516 writer. You know, he's like the oh, best yeah. writer ever. And so the fact that he's interested and I'm going to get to spend time with this guy is really great. And so spending time with him was really nice because I was I was a fan of his and he was like a fan of me. And and, and he's wicked smart. He's so right. smart. He's been like a war correspondent. He's been yeah. a, he's been a staff writer for the New Yorker forever. And he's he like knows politics in and out. And so I he spending time with him was like I was just soaking it up because he's he, you know he's like this wise older man who 
who kind of knows the secrets to everything. But plus, he he lived this life of adventure surfing very much the way that I've lived a life of adventure climbing. Right. And so we were able to kind of compare and contrast those things a ton. So yeah, was, I mean, I be, actually, uh, Hayden Kennedy turned me on to that Barbarian Days book. So it's oh, really nice. special to me. Yeah. And then when he he came and talked in Aspen, and I went up and saw him, but before that, I dug up. I got this email address from from somebody else who who was like, "I have this old address. I don't know if this is his." And I mean, I, you know, he's a New York New Yorker writer. Like, you don't just con. There's someone you have to go through this. <laughs> but I was like, "The hell with it!" And I emailed this email and like, "Hey, you're gonna be in town." And my friend was was you know a huge fan of yours, and I'd love to talk to you. And I know you don't climb, but Barbarian Days has all these parallel. You know, I explained it. All. I never heard back because I'm sure he never saw it. Right. Or it just went went away or, you know, he gets thousands of requests. But but now that you're, you know, now that I feel like maybe there's an in if I could if I could work it to get him on this show. Yeah. I mean, he's really into climbing and he's really into oh. climbing with his daughter who's like um, 19 or 20 or something. She's got to be a fan of the Enormacast. Are you listening? She's probably a fan of the Enormacast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I don't want to talk <laughs> to you. I want to talk to your dad. Yeah. Well, they go on trips all the time together to can, climbing areas. Yeah. So if you can, you know, convince them to come on a trip to rifle or something. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Maybe that'd yeah. be your end. Yeah. yeah. Um, because I, I think like he, I, I, and I, I, this isn't just my opinion, but I don't think anyone's written about climbing the way he write, wrote about surfing. And it's like, it's still weight. No offense. I know you're, you've written a book. <laughs> None taken. <laughs> no, when I say he's like, a, I mean, I don't know if, out of all the books I've read, I feel like he he describes scenes better than anyone. So, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. and, I've, and climbers are pretty good at that a lot yeah. of times. Like climbing books do that quite well, honestly, but this is like next level. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't so. know what the, the special sauce in there exactly is. Because yeah. it's, because that, is not explainable, yeah. but it's a tremendous book. And, and, uh, and, um, yeah, I, I, I just love it. I mean, I have that connection to it because of HK too, but, yeah. um, but yeah, I was, when I, that came up on my feed, I was like, Oh my God, he's like Bill Finnegan's writing about, writing about Tommy. Yeah. yeah. So that's pretty cool. But yeah, he didn't, he didn't, uh, take it on. You've been, so, we just talked about it. Someone tried to take you down. It was a while. Ago, yeah, but. that was, yeah. Nobody's tried to take me down in a long time. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> so it's been, challenge. It's been since like 2001. Right. So challenge yeah. thrown out there. <laughs> um, your daughter was born, right? As this, that episode came out. Yeah. So you became a two child family. And yeah. I, some people say, yeah, two kids, one kid. What's the difference? What's the difference? Has it, has it been, uh, I mean, I know you were like freaked out a little bit about it. You mentioned that. Yeah, what 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 changed with having uh, having two kids? I mean, the one. I guess if I'm speaking to people who are thinking about going down that road themselves, yeah. yeah. Becca and I, when we just had one kid, I felt like we were graceful, good parents. Who I was like proud of our parenting, essentially, and our and our relationship was like very strong and loving. <laughs> and then when Ingrid was born, I was like, maybe it's not so much anymore. You know, it's like things got rough for a while, I would say. Right. And part, part of that wasn't like, I just had a lot of other stuff going on right. in life too. Right. So I was just like pulled in so many directions. And, and so there was a couple years of like hect- hecticness, but Ingrid was a great child. Fitz right. is a great child. It wasn't, it wasn't due to that at all. It was just due to the, um, you know, like I, th- I felt like if, if you can quantify one child as a certain amount of work, two was like tripled it essentially in my mind for a couple of years. Right now, though, it's incredible. Ingrid's five, and we've done tons of road tripping with them. Like we've lived in the van 
with them a ton and that's made them really close like they're really good with each other oh cool and i think van life does that actually and so now having two kids is incredible and ingrid's like such a superhero i mean she's like everybody is so in love with this girl and i I can't imagine not having her you know Mm -hmm. like and the same with with fitz but if i had to choose i'd probably choose ingrid God, he's gonna be like twenty. Listen to this. He's like, God, explains everything. Um, <laughs> um, you you just said like, oh, that was like a a dark period. Um, and may, maybe it was like beginning, because I mean, li- looking back at our interview together, it was like, I mean, it's just it's it's a. I thought it was a really vibrant I- interview. Did did a really good job. Um, but you know, so let's go back in time. Like, what are you talking about? Like just too, too busy, too many changes, too much going on. Well, as I'm thinking about the timeline now, if we, if we recorded the last of normal cast right before Ingrid was born, I really got in the depths of like obsessed with writing my book after Ingrid was born. Okay. And like when I go into things that I care about, I go really deep. And so there, I think there was a period of time probably after we talked where I woke up at five o'clock in the morning every day Mm -hmm. and I sat in front of the computer and tried to dissect my life until like 2 PM every day. And I tried to like really dig into the depths. Like, you know, I, Kelly Cordes was like a huge collaborator through that time. And, and, um, and he really encouraged me to view it in a realistic way. Like, I think I viewed my life in sort of this, like, puppy dogs and rainbows way before that in some ways like i would i would sort of put this filter on everything that just made it really positive that's Mm -hmm. like that's what my dad does and that doesn't make that's not real that doesn't make for a great book so i had to really learn the value of of reality in a way that made me darker for a time i mean maybe still honestly right more real more deep but it was like emotionally kind of crazy to try and take all this stuff that's happened to your life and and really try to figure out what it means. And part of my want to do that was because I had two kids and I wanted to be able to understand my own life so I so I could then give my best self to them. Right. But at two PM I mean I've heard of this a lot with art and any art, if you wanna go as far as to call your writing art that yeah you just you can't just be like okay close your computer and like okay now i'm fine yeah i'm just gonna be this you know back to sunshine and rainbows guy yeah no that didn't happen (laughs) it was always in my head right and i think with with becca she obviously knew that she could see it i was like kind of slightly mentally not 100 percent there for a good six months right i would say I mean, I haven't really like delved into the the reviews of the book or anything like that. I mean, how was it received? Great, yeah. yeah. No, I think it was received really well. And how did you feel about well, it? Well, I, you know, that time, like my my motivation for mm-hmm. going that deep with it wasn't because I was thinking about other people right. reading it so right. much. I wanted to write a good book, of course, but I was like, this is the only time in my life where I've tried to. Re- it was like my own personal therapy experiment, right. you know. I was like, Kelly was my therapist, really, you know, and I'm like, I'm I'm really trying to figure myself out, mm-hmm. and so that was my motivation. Phrase that question wrong because I don't. That's not actually what I cared about. I did want to know how you felt about it when you when you finally gave it away because it's it's. You know, that's another thing I've heard and understand with even writing short things. It's like, when do you stop and be like, I'm done and this is now going to go out of my hands and be published or go out of my hands and be edited? Yeah. You know, 
like was that a difficult thing for you to do like to let it go and become a public piece of 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 the record as it were no i mean i think my my climbing life of it's almost like risk management like putting yourself out there in this very vulnerable way feels like this risky thing but i'm so used to risky things that at some point you just decide that you're like doing it and you're just going with it and right. that's how the book felt like i felt like my process was over when it got published and i was curious about how it was going to be received mm-hmm. but that wasn't the reason per se that i wrote it right can you get i mean you get more specific about like you know i i kind of like cruised past the um the the kyrgyzstan stuff in, in in like laying out the story in our last interview because i was like we don't have time to tell the whole story but then we started talking about the effects of it and listening to it again i was you know you it was an interesting response had that changed at all like um your response was a, was quite a bit of like yeah people think i should be all fucked up by this but i wasn't yeah and i kind of acted like i was and then i felt guilty that i wasn't yeah. <laughs> is there something wrong with me that I could go through that and be fine? Yeah. Like, was there a reevaluation of that at all? I mean, I think that I I realized that my life today is deeply affected, was deeply affected by Kyrgyzstan in a, in a way that I probably wouldn't have really known if I hadn't gone through that process. Mm-hmm. And it was it was more like my like my drive was changed. Like I was pretty driven before Kyrgyzstan, but I wasn't like the kind of climber that was so dedicated that I could dedicate like seven years towards a single project. Like there's something about the, the pain of that Kyrgyzstan experience that made me sort of want to um, feel deeply again. Yeah. And I think that writing the book probably helped me figure that out. And uh, and another thing that that book really impacted was my relationship with my dad. And he hated the book, by the way, he like, freaked out when I gave I gave it to him like four days before I sent it to the publisher and I was like make any comments you want he he was devastated by the whole thing and it created this giant like rift that was hard to heal really yeah which anybody else who reads the book they're like oh your dad's such an endearing character but he's of this generation that you're not used to putting yourself out there sure. and so I was I was willing to be pretty vulnerable with that book which meant the other characters in the book are revealed as well and he just wasn't comfortable with that mm-hmm and he wanted that puppy dog in rainbows view like he like he wanted my childhood to be just seen as like this idyllic perfect thing which and it was great in a lot of ways but right. it wasn't all that way you know that's right. not real and i actually wrote the first chapters of the book that way the first time i wrote them and then i went back and rewrote them where where does it stand now i i would say that like our relationship got way more deep because of that. Yeah, I think it, it it deepened and strengthened it after some time, like after this kind of blow up. Like sometimes you just got to blow it up and then come back together. And it's good now. In recent years, it's it's gotten a little bit harder again because like so much of the world these days, we're, we're like politically on opposite sides of the spectrum and that's gotten away a little bit. We were just talking earlier about how our dads are of a, of a very close generation. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I don't know if I if I just laid it out and then handed it to my dad, I, d- I don't think it would go well either, actually. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I had a great childhood too. And I, yeah. I, I love my dad and I appreciate everything he did for me, but we, we aren't a family that does that either. Yeah. Like goes, goes deep and like goes into the, the nooks and crannies, you know, as it were. Totally. Yeah. And I wasn't that kind of person either. Right. So 
And I am more now because of the process of writing a book. So after that, I was like, everybody should write a book. Like, I think this is this is like a really good thing to go through as a human being. Mm-hmm. What about uh, what about the, the you know your immediate family? What about Becca? It was a little bit hard for Becca because uh, it talked a lot about right. the pre the pre Becca part of my life, and there was there's stuff in there that she didn't even know. I would say before reading the book, right? But she's such an incredible woman. And I think when I wrote that book, I sort of understood that nowadays I really understand. That. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it was, it was good for our relationship, but I wouldn't say it changed it drastically back and I, yeah, yeah. you gotta keep that. You gotta keep that going. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. She, she is an incredible woman. Yeah. Um, I, 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 every time I spend more than like two minutes with her, I'm like, yeah, yeah, she's, 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 she's radical. So, well, that's that's fascinating because I mean the book came out a while ago, so again we're like catching up with a lot of this stuff. Totally, yeah. Um, and I'm glad it was successful. Yeah, you know, and it, and it was like probably the right time to do it. Definitely, yeah. yeah. I think it was the right time. Let's talk a little bit about climbing. <laughs> about your climbing, I want to actually ask you or talk a little bit about the um the nose record, mm-hmm. um and like what sort of came out of that because it's a wild story. You know, there was this film made out of it, and it's like a, in a lot of ways, it's sort of like this fun adventure film, and and yet there's this like, I think there's this kind of dark aspect to it because I was there, you guys were actually climbing, doing some runs on the nose, and I was over, like just fully epicking on Golden Gate. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It got really desperate, um, and we had a lot of bad weather and stuff like that. So I don't know if you remember a period of. Of, of shitty weather during that time but um we were up there on the on the golden gate yeah i remember some bad weather yeah but when you're speed when you're climbing the nose in like three hours you yeah. just kind of scooted in between yeah <laughs> totally yeah. i remember starting up the nose a few times and being like the clouds are building yeah. but i think we're gonna be on top before they build anymore so yeah i okay. do like two pitches in the amount of time that you had done that thing you yeah. know and then it starts raining and you're like Oh shit! Everything's packed. Let's get it out. Um, but yeah. So anyway. But then you know, and, and I've talked to uh, Jordan at length, who was there on the on the route when those um, those guys died. So I instantly kind of thought about you and this relationship you had with like the Kyrgyzstan thing and the relationship you have. I mean, you've mentioned in that last interview, you know, you had like this incredible tally of sort of lost lost friends in the mountains and yeah. um and then we have you know we have mutual friends that have, have been lost so talk a little bit about that adventure um from sort of your point of view and i don't know how it fit into kind of your philosophy as far as being a parent and stuff like that because i i was like a little bit i mean when i watched the film you know they sort of portray you as the safe guy yeah and it's kind of like a conceit in the film, but I was I was a little skeptical. No offense, I was just like, God, there's nothing safe about what they're doing. Yeah, even though you put that cam in, you yeah, know, they, they focused on that cam, and it, yeah. you know, and and you know, it's like, you know, here we are in Estes, and and Quinn lives up here. Yeah, so I was just like, I, I kind of wanted to get your the sort of behind the scenes in your brain of the of the true like safety of what you were doing, and if you ever questioned it while you were doing it. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would say that the, um, like it doesn't fit into my overall ethos of parenting. Like it was outside of that in a way. Like I knew, I guess I went into it like you do with any dangerous climb, kind of convincing yourself that you can be careful and find ways to make it safe. And I guess I 
feel like we mostly did, and mm-hmm. that is still true, or else I wouldn't have done it. Um, I'm not a speed climber generally. Like right. I, I never was really that interested in it, and except pretty much whenever Alex gets excited about something and wants me on board, I'm, it's always so awesome that I kind of decided to do it with him. And I'm not, I'm not sad that we did, but there was definitely moments throughout the month that we spent lapping the nose every couple of days that I was like, is this the right thing to do? And, and Becca would, was really questioning it constantly. Mm-hmm. Like she was, she was there in the Valley with the kids when Jason and Tim died. And we got together with Jordan and the Rangers and debriefed with them about that death. And and at the time, they had released some um, kind of media about the deaths, but they didn't want to disclose who it was at that point. So everybody thought it was Alex and I that had died because everybody oh, knew wow. that we were right. climbing the nose, speed wow. climbing the nose. And they just wow. kind of released this thing of like, two speed climbers die. And so like a lot of people thought mm-hmm. we had died. And so it got heavy for a time. But it was weird when we were climbing, it never felt that way. Like it never right. felt scary. It always felt like we were taking precautions. We were really analyzing each piece of gear. Like the enjoyable part of that climb was figuring out sort of this choreographed dance that you have to do when you speed climb a right. wall like that. The timing, you know, thinking about all the potential falls and the ledges and when you can put in gear and when you can skip gear. And it's like an incredibly calculated thing. And we would climb it every day. And then we would spend like three or four hours debriefing as we hiked down and then got back down to the car and repacked for the next day. And it was really more than a physical thing. It was like a logistical feat. And so we talked it through so much. And so we would discuss all those dangers. And then when those guys died, we went back again and we reevaluated everything again and we're like where where are there holes in our plan where could we mm-hmm. potentially be doing things wrong and so we convinced ourselves that it was pretty safe especially for me like the way that we ended up doing it and Alex is so funny in this way he's like you're the dad that's changing soon but he's like you're the dad you you're the one that needs to be safe so he would take the brunt of the of the dangerous stuff, like the short fixing that we did at the top. I didn't do any short fixing and short fixing is, I believe a way, a way more dangerous way to climb than simul climbing. And so when we were short fixing at the top, he was the one leading. And did you guys have confidence that it would happen that you could get the, I mean, you got the record, but then that you could get the two hours. Alex had total confidence. I mean, Alex is funny that way. Right. He has total confidence in everything right. that he chooses to do. Like, right. if he doesn't have total confidence, he doesn't even try it right. in the first place. Right. And so that was the way he felt all along. Mm-hmm. And I was I was just along for the ride, kind of. I was like, this is going to be a crazy experience. This is, you know, I mean, it, like, I think the thing that shocked me, if you can get rid of the death and sort of the heavy moments is the actual process of going and doing it with Alex was so fun. Like like starting up El Cap with no shirt and like 15 cams attached to your harness and topping out the nose two hours later. There's like, it's so exhilarating and really, really incredible. Like you, you reach this flow state that we always want in climbers. Like it's like a a guaranteed flow state when you're climbing in that way, which it's really hard to get in climbing other than that. I always gravitate the other direction. I'm like, yeah, but what about, the dark part of it all you know what i mean um and 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 when you mentioned that and and obviously i know that but yeah the idea of of climbing the nose in that amount of time and in that style must be just like it's close to flying as you get with climbing you know like yeah just like hauling ass and moving the whole time and it's it sounds pretty awesome actually 
Yeah, it was it was right. so so exhilarating and really fun. I mean, in a way that may, I mean, I imagine base jumping is like that too, but right. base jumping is not always safe. So that's from afar. I mean, in the moment, I right. I rarely questioned. I never questioned it while we were climbing. Right. But from afar, I and even today, I question whether that's a good idea to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, one one explana- exclamation point on it too is that it was like, I don't know. It really put this like exclamation point on on you guys' partnership because I just felt like there's nobody in the world that could do this except for those two guys. And and that's like obviously hyperbole, but it was like this pinnacle of your partnership in a way to get that in sync. Yeah. You know what I mean? Totally. I mean, we've, we've done a lot of big mountain link ups together mm-hmm. where we simul climb and it just doesn't work that well with anybody else. And so yeah. I think one thing that both Alex and I have figured out is there's, there's not much in life that's more exhilarating than finding that like niche that you can do that, that really hasn't been explored to that level before. It feels like this truly like creative exploratory thing. And that felt like that. And I think that was, that was the appeal. So still not a lot of love for the Dihedra wall ascent. Um, I, you know, no one's written a definitive piece on that or anything. Um, that's an inside joke from the last, from the last interview. But, uh, with that in mind, let's talk about passage to freedom. Yeah, <laughs> like another thing that got done in like, I don't know. It seemed like it. It was a little bit uh, crickets received by crickets. Another free route on El Cap. I did my you know tertiary research and I was like, oh yeah, they put up that other free route on El Cap. So tell me about that thing. Like when I was when I was <laughs> climbing hard routes, sport climbs, mm-hmm. or when I started climbing on El Cap before, it seemed like the hype was around the difficulty of the route right right? that's what everybody was concerned about was the difficulty of that route and it probably still exists in bouldering and sport climbing to a certain extent but i think climbing has evolved to this point where the hype is more about the experience like that journey that you go on because the stuff is documented in movies and stuff right and so that's why the dawn wall was such this crazy hype because it was this like insane experience that lasted a really long time passage of freedom was almost as hard as the dawn wall probably but I was with a partner that was so dialed and I was so dialed and had learned so much on the Dawn Wall that we it just took us like five weeks to do it or whatever. And it just like all kind of went as planned. So even though it was like a hard route up a, an amazing part of the wall, it wasn't dangerous, really. It wasn't, you know, we didn't struggle that much in any way. It just kind of all went as planned. Right. <laughs> and so therefore, it's not that exciting. Is it a good climb? <laughs> it's an amazing climb. It's so good. Yeah, if you're somebody out there who is like a contender for doing it, you should definitely do it. It's like, it's way better than the Dawn Wall. Like a million times better, actually, because it doesn't have the heinous, like super sharp crimping. Um, it's just like beautiful splitter pitches, these big crazy dinos. It's like it, maybe the best route. Yeah, it's not, I mean, I did read about it when it happened to, and, you know, running into these crazy splitters sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, you found a way around the, uh, the hood ornament is the hood ornament still there it's still there okay yeah i was just wondering about that yeah yeah the, the weirdly the way around the i mean if you haven't heard that story that story's right. awesome about leo going up there and um that's one kind of one of the reasons i wanted to try it because right. i was such a fan of i was kind of in awe of leo when he did it back in the day and then mm-hmm. he had like bolted this thing onto the wall and but then when i went up there i was like that seems weird that you go that way and so i just followed the original aid line and it wasn't any harder <laughs> <laughs> Take that, Leo. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, so you kind of got around that. And the story is, is that yeah, he was attempting the, the basically the the line in a way, and uh, ended up doing a move by bolting a Alfa Romero hood ornament. Yeah, just like a little creates like a tiny little. It's like a badge. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. a it's a uh, Alfa Romeo badge that he bolted right. to the wall, but it's like a piece of metal. It's like a plate of right. metal, right, with the Alfa Romeo logo on it. But he bolted it in a way that you could like get your fingers behind it, oh. so it's actually a legitimate hold. And I remember talking to him back then when I did it. He was doing that right when I first showed up in Yosemite, and he he, he was like talking about how you'd like dyno to it and make this hard left and then make this hard right and dyno off of it to another hold. And then I was just like, what? Who is this guy? This right. crazy British guy? He's, yeah bolting weird things to the wall and you know anybody if anybody else did that they would think it was atrocity but he somehow finds a way to make it just seem cool <laughs> yeah exactly no it's, it's we we i've talked about that a bunch like the climbers you like or they get away with murder and then totally the, 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 the sort of climbers that don't have that kind of universal love yeah you know they do one like tiny thing and they get like completely destroyed yeah but yeah well we i i've also had a discussion with someone about the um you know what a Mack truck logo looks like? The little dog. Uh, it's like a little bulldog that's I, like standing on all fours. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like it would be know, a yeah. true like gym jug if you if, right. if you face it upward. <laughs> yeah. It'd be this like little head that you grabbed. Right. Like, okay. You could make it stick that way. Like you yeah. could you could like put a like a five eight root up El Cap if you just bolted <laughs> those little guys to the wall. So, yeah. Luckily that didn't take um that didn't that trend didn't take hold. No. Yeah. Um but yeah, it's interesting. So I mean there's also a great big traverse on that one, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of that, that. That's like a, I think a people a thing that probably scares people. Yeah, kind of. I mean, it's funny because when you look at the wall from the ground, where that traverse, it looks like the system of cracks and stuff that mm-hmm. we follow up at the bottom. It looks like it totally ends, and I think that's what Leo thought too. But then because I was on the Dawn wall for so long looking over there, I was like, there's edges everywhere. There's like, there's like a, there's a way to climb that. And that's why I knew it went that way. And, and I actually thought it was going to be really easy. I was like, those are jugs. It's going to be easy climbing. We didn't really even explore it that much because we thought it was going to be so easy. So then we, when we went up to actually send the thing after spending a few weeks working on it, we hadn't even tried those pitches and they ended up to be pretty hard. (laughs) What was the, what was sort of the grade? like um just tally up there on on that thing versus the dawn wall or some of the other hard routes well i mean the route was stacked with a lot of 513 plus pitches okay and a lot of like lots of lower end 513 probably like five or six 513 pluses and a lot Mm -hmm. of hard 512 and the dawn wall is the same except the dawn wall has a couple 514 plus pitches thrown in there right yeah see i think people are like googling passes to freedom tommy caldwell right now because yeah. <laughs> like it literally just like disappeared into the ether yeah like as far as media is concerned yeah it's and, and the it's just an interesting thing in contrast to the dawn wall totally you know? you're just like well wait <laughs> what happened <laughs> yeah and then my i also, you know i have my dihedral wall problem too um which has been repeated since then the dihedral wall, yeah yeah because yeah. we it yeah. hadn't been yorg yeah yes which also then precipitated well actually his ascent of the nose precipitated the Jorg Verhoeven award which we created oh i don't know anything about it, that well no one does but um <laughs> he doesn't know about it either i don't think i've been trying to get him on the show but it's it's where you do some rad thing but it gets it but no no one notices <laughs> so i he's, think he's passage, got the award he's got the award for that yeah, yeah. because he because right before the donwall he did the nose 
Yeah. And like And nobody really even eh, noticed you know, it. Yeah. yeah. You did it too easy. Yeah. There wasn't much of a story. Right. Yeah. yeah. So and yeah. Uh, I think it was a bigger story, obviously, probably where he lives, but here in the States no one cared. Yeah. And so I think actually you you the passage of freedom would have been what year did you guys do that? That was probably what, three years ago. Okay. Yeah. So it gets the twenty eighteen retrospectively you guys get the twenty eighteen Jorg Verhoeven award for that route. Because <laughs> Jordan Cannon got it. For um his his one day ascent at Golden Gate, yeah, because Emily had just done it right before, right. Him, so no one cared. <laughs> yeah, and weirdly Emily got a lot of hype for falling on Golden Gate, but yeah. much less for actually doing it in the end. I felt like absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but yeah, poor Jordan Cannon got the Jorg uh, Verhoeven Award for that ascent. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what kind of sense of humor Jorg Verhoeven has, but I hope it's, it's good. good. As far as I know, it's okay, good. good. Yeah, good, I don't need to be punched by that guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah so uh, so yeah that, that's cool that we we uh we got to that um we are going to get to your politics and your environmentalism which is actually a real big reason why i wanted to talk to you so well but let me get through my list okay to catch you up john villanueva o'driscoll yeah does the does the fitch traverse yeah how stoked are you i mean he's my ultimate man crush right honestly like a lot of people i right. feel like very stoked i mean he's <laughs> that, that was a shocking climb in my mind. Like I had no idea that nobody was thinking about that. It's like when Alex and I did the Fitchers, it's something that everybody had been talking about. Everybody mm-hmm. had think, been thinking about for a long time. Right. The idea to solo it, like nobody had even contemplated that. And so, and he did it in this like very Sean way with just like playing music and just having this great time up there in the mountains all by yourself. And that's like, I mean, the, the ability to have like, incredible fun in the midst of an experience that almost everybody would think is absolutely terrifying. Right. That's like one of the most admirable qualities in my mind that you can have. And, um, yeah, it was really, I think one of the cool things about it too, is like, it just popped onto everybody's radar. It was done. He did it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. He was down he's there down there in the COVID. pandemic. He's stuck and, there. Yeah. yeah. He's stuck yeah. there because of COVID. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden it's like, there's a little bit of media about it and everybody's like, what? What, is, what yeah. just happened? <laughs> yeah. Super cool. We had talked to him afterwards and, uh, it, it was super cool. But again, I thought like, wow, you guys are like that. Like you just said, like the fact that, you know, you maybe woke up and we're drinking coffee or something. And all of a sudden you see this post about that happening must've been pretty wild. Yeah. I mean, my buddy, Austin Sidak, who mm-hmm. spent a ton of time down there, texted me and he's like right. did you know that and this was before i think it broke in the news even he's like did you know that and i almost like didn't even believe it i was like wait what does he mean like i must i must be misunderstanding this text like right. solo the fitz traverse like what like what i don't even know. yeah so um yeah and then, then it turns out he did and i was like right. wow that's so cool nice did you communicate with him at all? Yeah, I did a I did a online interview with him in mm-hmm. front of the whole Patagonia ambassador squad because we're both we're fellow Patagonia ambassadors, oh, okay. and which was super fun. Yeah, I bet. And um, yeah, I mean it's it's funny his way of talking about it is just he just makes such lightness of the whole thing. It almost like the magnitude of the experience is I don't know if he doesn't feel it or he doesn't like to talk about it or like. <laughs> I'm just like, there's got to be more there than just having this great time up in the mountains playing the flute, you know? Mm-hmm. But that's kind of how he seems to talk about it. Yeah, I think he's just a little bit laconic about about talking about it all. In yeah. General. You know, he's never struck me as that into 
talking about what he does. Yeah. Yeah. I don't totally. know. I've, I, you know, he agreed to do the Enormacast, but I haven't been able to get him to do it. Yeah. So it was, I think it was kind of one of the, yes, that's really a no kind of a thing. So. Yeah. He likes, but, he likes to express himself through his, yeah. his instruments. Yeah. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, well, that's cool. Yeah. I, I just kind of wanted to run that by you and then, uh, and we're going to get, I'm going to skip to the end of my list here to the modern times with, uh, with flex getting repeated. Yeah. Yeah. Flex Luthor getting repeated, graded 515B. Yeah. And uh, I know you're sort of interested in that. Talk about what how hard it is because of, like, broken holds and whatnot. But um, that and, – and just to set the stage because I don't think it's a super – or it wasn't super well-known maybe till it got repeated, but it's it's on the western slope by where I live up at the Fortress of Solitude. Did it in, what, 2003? Um yeah something like that that's right yeah. and uh just sat there as, yeah i as, probably would have got the yorg award when i did that route yeah. back in the day <laughs> it was pre-social media though so it's yeah, hard to find yeah. out about stuff um yeah, yeah but i mean it, it it was you you kind of uh i think you know said yeah it was the hardest thing i'd done and i don't know it's pretty hard and it's like harder than kryptonite so 15a maybe i i, I think you were a little bit like i don't know we'll find out but then it just sat there yeah, and it got repeated. So, how, like, did did you know these guys are out there banging the way at it? Yeah, people. Yeah, yeah um, I mean, Daniel Woods had tried it a few right. times. I think uh, John Cardwell had tried. It. Dave Graham had tried. It. Every time somebody would try it, I would kind of like talk to them and be like, "What do you think?" And most people were like, "It's pretty chossy. It's <laughs> <laughs> holds are breaking." And I was like, "Well, sorry." Right. <laughs> um, but I'm really curious at this point to go back and check it out see because i can still i can sit here this this many years later and remember the crux mm-hmm. move still and so it'd be pretty easy for me to go up there and be like has it changed a bunch right um and i'm and i'm just also stoked that the crag has gotten some love because i remember when i did it out you know i think tim kimple wrote this whole article in climbing magazine he's like this is the, the crag i think they called it the crag of the future right and then it just except for people like you who are locals it just kind of fizzled like yeah, nobody totally disappeared it, yeah it didn't get any love for a long time and then mm-hmm. now it's kind of had this resurgence and i had this these great times up there with my dad and then working on that route with beth and and also kind of like really powerful moments because i chopped off my finger and just that that climb was the climb that i sort of had to prove to myself that i still had had what it took to be a good climber so that's that was why i worked so hard on that climb i was like if i do this this will be proven to myself that i still have what it takes and so i had a little bit of extra like angsty zest behind trying to Uh do it Uh and then it just kind of sat dormant for a long time yeah for a really long time and you're absolutely right it was like it was almost like the end of the crag yeah yeah i mean kryptonite gets got done every once in a while especially in the last few years yeah but yeah i mean it, knowing being around and and being sort of a local yeah it's it's never it's never like blossomed into yeah. anything beyond that really yeah and, so. I th- and i think part of the reason is modern day sport climbing is pretty heavy-handed in terms of um like quaffing it i don't know if that's the right word like making the making the experience great for repeats right and we weren't thinking about that back then like we were we were anti euro chipping so i was like i'm only going to clean this thing with a toothbrush (laughs) right (laughs) and really chossy limestone yeah and so i'm not surprised i mean i think with the first repeats after i did kryptonite too people were like this thing's a choss pile because we would just pull things off with our fingers and then we would find the holds that seemed solid and we'd climb on those and so if anybody else came up afterwards and grabbed anything else it would just fall off the wall right and so I think Flex had to go through that process. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not a yeah, it's not like a totally pristine cliff. No, <laughs> <laughs> definitely not by any means. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but I was, but I'm, I'm like such a fan of all those guys that we're working on. I mean, I love, I love hanging out with those guys, and they're really inspiring to me. And so the fact that they dedicated like a portion of their year to trying to make that happen, and they mm-hmm. thought it was a cool experience, like that means something to me. You know? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's like funny because while like you're lamenting that it never became a popular cliff, but then it also is cool because it is stuck in amber and it's like every other cliffs become too popular. Yeah. And I think that pretty much those guys had the same experience you had <laughs> other than the fact that you were putting up roots. Yeah. But going up there and being by yourself and, you know, crag to yourself and, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, hiking it, through the snow for yeah. an hour to get up yeah. there and dealing with like weird, like it's in the sun all the time yeah. and the conditions are crazy and and there's ice that forms on. I mean, it was uh, yeah, it, it's like an alpine climb of hard sport climbs in a way. Yeah. You gotta be, you gotta endure a lot to climb with that crag. Yeah, and, and it's just like there's. I don't think there's probably any crags that sport climbing that you could go and have the same experience someone had literally 20 years ago. Yeah, in 2021, you know, <laughs> and so that, I guess I, I did, it just occurred to me like. It's cool. It's like it's sort of cool it didn't get popular because who knows what it would look like or whether the Forest Service would have gotten more bent out of shape about the trail and, you know, things yeah. that have happened up there, you know, since. So Totally. Yeah. So it's it's like cool. You're, it was stuck in amber and, and people like rediscovered it. So, yeah, um, I just can't. I mean, it's always been this cliff. I'm like, I don't know if we're ever going to be dealing with crowds up here, but. I yeah. guess a lot of people have said that about cliffs that are crowded now. So I kind of, but I still feel like if you got to hike more than thirty minutes, yeah. like the crags don't get yeah. don't get crowded yet. Well, and it's a de- it's part. a it's a it's a it's a weird season. Yeah, really know? weird season. Yeah. yeah. So um, we'll just keep it the way it is. Yeah, for, for now. I mean, not not that I go up there a ton, um, but I you know I put the best route up. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> I've actually sworn that this winter we're gonna go gonna go clean that guy back up again the Calouse logan <laughs> wait where is that root on the crag what are you talking about I don't where know is it it's like the thing you see from the road no um, <laughs> it's over to the right of the it's uh in between like the main wall where like flexes and and the metropolis and stuff all right huh. yeah it's in there okay yeah it's pretty it's pretty chossy <laughs> <laughs> okay but uh it, it was good when it was climbed it's gotten it's gotten pretty dirty that's why we've with this new with this new popularity of the cliff, yep. we want our route to be in pristine condition. So yeah. me and Michael Logan, that's who put it up. Yeah. So we've <laughs> we've talked about going up there and like replacing the draws, making sure the bolts are okay and cleaning the bird shit off of it again. You're nice. Yeah. So yeah. get it get it back in shape. <laughs> For cause all the suitors that are gonna show up want to <laughs> climb on it. All right, let's move let's move to uh I think at least in the last like two or three years, um environmental and political side of Tommy Caldwell. Um, it's been a noticeable shift, you know, something that you, I'm sure we're always concerned about, but, um, it's made it, you seem to have made it like a priority in your life is that, yeah. Joining environmental movements, using whatever clout you gained, um, from the book and from Don wall and this kind of celebrity, whatever level you want to consider it to be someone who's making like political moves towards, helping the environment can you talk about that shift and um, we'll we'll sort of get into the the nuts and bolts of what it actually means to be doing that and going to washington and things like that yeah i mean 
I think that you're wrong in thinking it was something I was always con- I was always thinking about. Okay. I wasn't. Actually. I was just giving you the benefit. Of the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't really thinking about it that Back much. In the, you're just when I was throwing young. your trash off of the Don Wall and shit like that. <laughs> Somebody I mean, this up. I mean, I was like, I was like ethically <laughs> strong always as a climber, but almost it was almost more like an ego thing. Like I wanted to be a real climber, and being a real climber meant you know being low impact. So right. in my climbing, I was always that way. But in terms of like work, you know, thinking about the the greater problems in the world that definitely wasn't something that was on my radar and they have gotten more on my radar and i think it's really a place of privilege that has gotten me there like most of the people in the world don't have the like the resources and the time and the money and the will to like think about this kind of stuff and um and climbing has given me so much that it's really gotten me to a place where i can and so I'm, I might as well. I mean, like, what's the use in getting kind of famous if you don't actually try and do something good with that? Right. And um, so, yeah, my, my journey started with the Access Fund. I was a board member for the Access Fund um, for a bunch of years, and we were just thinking about climbing Access. But in more recent years, they started doing this event called Climb the Hill. And one year, they invited me to go to D.C. and they you know the climb the hill event is this thing where they bring a whole bunch of climbers together and a whole bunch of climbing industry like business people and lawyers and you know usually about like 50 or 60 people and they all go to capitol hill and they take meetings with whoever they can so maybe over a three-day period there'll be like 50 meetings and i had no interest in going to dc i didn't like politics i you know, I've always kind of thought it was a sleazy thing. And so I agreed to go just because I was like, well, this is something I've never done before. <laughs> I'm kind of curious about it. The Alex Honnold philosophy, life experience. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, it was a life, it was full on a life experience. Yeah, right. um, so I like bought a suit, you know, I put oh, yeah. it on it. It was all very uncomfortable, oh, obviously. Yeah. And, uh, but I've learned how the cake you is look, made. You yeah. look so uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> you look like a kid who they dressed up for church totally <laughs> which is exactly how i feel in a suit too yeah i look yeah. at myself i'm like Ugh. yeah anyway, totally. yeah <laughs> but i learned how the cake is made and i also started to you know it's kind of coincided with having kids and um sort of getting clued into climate change largely through patagonia because mm-hmm. when you're a part of the patagonia fold it's like you're constantly thinking about it because all the articles they write in their catalogs and their blogs and everything, it's all environmental. And then around that time, they also changed their mission statement to we're in business to save our home planet. And so it just kind of got pushed more and more in that direction and started to become more aware, mm-hmm. which led me to read a bunch, which leads you to become more excited and impassioned to be trying to make change. And now it's a huge part of my life. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, when you talk about the cake being made, like, you dropped into D.C. and, you know, not being somebody who's interested in politics, that seems like it could crush you, too. Like, if you if you go, if you show up and you're like, wow, we can do this, and then you realize, like, how entrenched it all is. Like, how did you, did you come away from, like, that first experience? There are so many possibilities, or did you come away like, wow, that's that's messed up, or that's, like... How, how did you go in there and sort of keep your keep your wits about you and not be like, Jesus Christ, what's going on here? Well, I started to learn how much of a game of chess politics is. Right. It's not based on, like, hard systems that are... I mean, it's really, it's really just a game. It's so much of a game. But within that game, you start to realize that, you know, if, if it's going to be a game, 
like maybe I should learn how to play that game. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I think that these outdoor groups like the Access Fund and there's like there's like a hike the hill event. I mean, there's a bunch of people that do similar type events. Right. Um, what they've clued into to is that there's so many lobbyists that come to Capitol Hill and they just spout numbers and they're kind of boring to talk to you and you know they're just the same thing they talk to the staffers and the staffers just kind of like their eyes glaze over and they hear the, whole, the same thing all the time if when you come with as a group of like adventurers and i mean kind of the secret sauce is dc is kind of run by the politicians but it's almost more run by the staffers in a lot of ways and they're all young and lots of them are climbers <laughs> and so if you come as somebody that they've heard of you get access to them and they want to hang out with you and you have these really vibrant conversations and you start to build these relationships and then they convince their bosses to go climbing with you. And like, you actually do start to make this influence just because of the excitement around climbing and to be able to transcend our, you know, relatively selfish pursuit of just going rock climbing and be able, and the idea of to be able to do something maybe bigger. I don't know. I don't know if bigger is the right word, but, something that might mean more than just rock climbing mm-hmm. with rock climbing is it was appealing to me is appealing to me and so how do you transcend that you know you just you were talking about privilege and talking about most people in the world don't don't can't possibly have the the bandwidth and the and the resources to worry about this global problem and then we talk about you know this kind of foolish pursuit of climbing and do you have to do a little bit of like mental gymnastics to kind of figure out your place in it and and i mean kind of it's it's a it's a messy world and once you start sticking your finger in politics at all Mm -hmm. you you get a lot of hate no matter what everybody calls you a hypocrite and you have to kind of develop a tough skin for that kind of stuff right but you have to stay sensitive to it in a way too otherwise you just become kind of an asshole and yeah figuring out how to walk that line properly is like most people shy away from it. Right. And when I say most people don't have the privilege to do it, most like I had, I had the privilege to like actually go to DC and spend time lobbying and mm-hmm. writing letters and kind of doing these heavy lifts to try and make a difference. Most people can't do that. Right. But what most people can do is they can sort of jump on the cultural shift that we're trying to create. Right. And so our hope is that through a few of us, making these heavy lifts it will start to shift the culture and then everybody will get on board i can easily because of my personality like fall into like total cynicism about it all yeah um and and hopelessness unfortunately you know And, and i understand like you know everybody can contribute but we have to but at in the end we have to make these giant like changes to our infrastructure we have to make these giant changes to the way industry works we have to make these giant changes and whether or not you drive a Subaru versus a Ford truck isn't necessarily going to save the world kind of a thing. Yeah. Anybody who wants to do something significant is in some regard going to be a hypocrite. Right. And so you get called out for that constantly. But like the, all those weird thoughts that you have, like what's the good that's going to come out of those? Like there's no good that can come out of oh, that. I know. Right? <laughs> so you might as well try. Put down your phone, dude. Like <laughs> yeah. stop. Like, yeah, you might as well just like try to do the best you can. Right, right, you know? right. And maybe we're going to fall short. Probably we're right. going to, I mean, if you look at the data, like probably we're going to fall short, but it's like a way richer journey trying to do something righteous and trying Mm -hmm. to say like the best adventure of all freaking time would be trying like getting on this like 
team that's saving the world. Like right. that's what all the best movies are about. You're saving the world, right? right? Like trying to do that is very exciting and cool. And it's like if you, you might as well try, you know. And mm-hmm. it's 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 a great journey. Have you um, ever thought uh, deeply or any sort of seriously about poli- like a political career? I could never. Like I mean, I I I I would love to think that I'm the kind of person that could pull that off, but I'm certainly not. Like you have to be way brighter than I am. You have to be way more articulate. You have to be able to navigate all of this craziness that I just can't mm-hmm. do. So, um, but I think there's people in the climbing world that do think about it and right. could go that way. And right. I would love to be support to get team. on board. Yeah, and, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean. Well, obviously, I think of Mark Udall. Yeah, you know he was a climber of sorts. Yeah, and uh, totally. not of sorts. I mean, he was a, he was an alpine climber. Yeah, and um, yeah. So it's interesting. I I, I kind of was driving here thinking about that. Like, what would the politician Tommy Caldwell look like? Yeah, like running for office. I I I couldn't make. I didn't make the. I didn't make it there. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. My, no, my, I, so I, I couldn't just, do it. Was it. Like I would, a question I, I would, I would flail and I would flounder in that world horribly. Well, and then I don't know. It's like. And do I even want that in yeah, life? It's yeah. just like, yeah. But that's another thing that you do find going to DC. Like politics as portrayed through the media is so ugly and people just inevitably seem like terrible people. Mm-hmm. But when you go and meet people, which is so often the case right. <laughs> in person and you watch them navigate this stuff, there's a lot of really, really smart and incredibly well-intentioned people in politics. Interesting. And um, and I think most people, I don't know about, my, a large percentage of the people that are in it are mm-hmm. in it for the right reasons. Like, I really think that getting to know these people. And so that makes you more optimistic. Right. So what are we, what are, what are sort of, um, you know, I, I watch your social media and uh, that's a lot of your communication about this stuff. So what should we be paying attention to maybe in the environment or even in climbing and slash the environment? You know, um, the bear's ear seems to be a momentary, you know, tip towards towards the light. Yeah. You know, we've talked to Len uh, Nessifer about that and how it can, you know, a, a change in politics can can shift it right back again. Yeah. Um, but we're at the moment. I know you were sort of involved in that kind of push to your your names on some of their media around that the access yeah. fund and stuff but what else is going on like just uh you know what's your concern at the moment where are you putting your energy yeah i mean i tend to focus on the issues that i feel like i have a chance to actually like make a little bit of a impact mm-hmm. on so they kind of need to involve climbing or things that right. climbers are at least interested in a little bit so bears ears was one because one of the best climbing areas in the world is in bears ears you know and a lot of other stuff but um i also have focused on oak flat which was a place in Arizona outside Phoenix. I went to the Phoenix. It was the biggest climbing competition in the world for a lot of years. And I went to the competition. I actually got second to Chris Sharma like eight years in a row at this climbing right. competition. Yeah. And it was a little bit like a weird combination of a competition slash like Burning Man style event. It was like this really kind of culturally crazy thing that I loved. And I just kind of became endeared to this climbing area down there that has been under threat of mining for even back then it was like this this, there's some giant copper deposit yeah the the biggest known i think i might be misspeaking but possibly the biggest known accessible copper deposit in north america so it's right underneath the bouldering area and the copper mine 
and and it's not only a bouldering area it's a but it's it's super historic land right. important cultural land with artifacts there's grinding holes there's petroglyphs it's like the um for the apache tribe it's a place where they go and hold these coming of age ceremonies it's like super sacred land right. for them and the mine proposal will basically be to extract the copper in the cheapest possible way which is this method of mining called block cave mining where they go deep underground and they remove the ore and then then afterwards the ground recedes and it will create this giant pit in the ground the boulder the whole bouldering area will just fall into the a thousand foot deep hole in the ground that's like two kilometers wide and a thousand feet deep that's kind of the projection like where does it stand you know the land designation is pretty complicated but the area was protected but one of the strategies that these mining companies have is they come and they 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 figure out that there's copper there and then they try and make land exchange deals where they get to buy up land elsewhere that is some of some value to the forest service or whatever and then they trade the land they say right. we'll give you this land that we've bought and then we'll take the other land that has the copper in it and then we get that land and we get to extract from there but the deeper you dig into it it gets really complicated but there's so many reasons not to do it like in some ways i'm like the world needs copper like it's a you know, for climate change things, we would like electric cars take way more copper. Right. The grid is going to take tons of copper. All of our electronics take tons of copper. Like copper is this really important thing. But there's like a lot of reasons besides like climbing isn't that important right. in this area. It's a mediocre climbing area. Like if, if it was climate change or climbing, I would be like, let's sacrifice the climbing here. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, it's, yeah it's never been super, super uh, attractive, sharp. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I've climbed there. It's cool. Yeah. But because I know the right. place, I can then have a bit of a voice. Right. And because the access fund, which I was on the board when they were fighting this issue a long time ago, um, I just learned a lot about it back then. And mm-hmm. so I can come and, and, and do what I can do what I can. But uh, you know, the, the, the copper companies have all these crazy strategies and they often win. They've put $2 billion into the project already. They dug a 7,000 foot deep elevator <laughs> right next to the copper deposit on land that they were able to, to acquire. Mm-hmm. And then they've, they bought the local politics of the town. They bought the whole town board. They bought the mayorship. Um, they convince everybody that it's going to be great, that everybody's going to prosper. All the local people are going to pr- prosper. But when you look at the mines surrounding this, the towns aren't prospering. All the money goes to, over you know it's a multinational mining right, it's a company multinational yeah yeah all the money all goes overseas the the land gets destroyed mm-hmm. the local economy is left suffering and then the main non-starter with this one is there's just not enough water like these mines take a tremendous amount right. of water and so the more i dig into it i'm like why would they ever do this this makes absolutely no sense well it's 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 like immediate profit what's going to happen right away can we can we turn this into money not like the long term yeah, I mean, what's the raid in terms of the tribal interest in it? Is there, is there an organized tribal opposition to it? Yeah, Apache Stronghold is. Right. There's been this guy Wensler Nosi has lived on the land in a teepee for like years and organized all these protests and um and the whole Apache Stronghold um, movement mm-hmm. is you know quite robust and they've gotten a lot of people involved and they're they're doing great work. Like if it weren't for them and the climbers actually the access fund has done a lot right to keep this from happening for years but one thing i realized about these big issues is like you you fight them for 
ever and the fight never ends you know the only way it ends is if you lose or it gets permanently protected by an act of congress which is really hard to yeah but that yeah that's that even really hard because that's yeah that's what what you know it seemed as though like a national monument is but then the politics change and there's an act of congress that unprotects it yeah you know, or whatever you well know. i think that um bears ears for example was a was protected under the antiquities, antiquities act, act yeah. which is like a executive order type yeah. thing which is different than an yeah. act of congress where right. they all have to vote which is a much more binding thing right right yeah so interesting so i mean let me just finish up with this you know what you were talking about like your book like get up in the morning 5 a.m right till two like every day like what is your sort of time and and what are you doing in terms of like these issues like what what kind of commitment do you have in terms of like what part of your kind of job is it do you think now to to put effort into these sorts of things if i were to take my climbing and think of it as a job which i generally don't do it's like a hobby right um i would say that these days it's like you know 20 or 30 percent is Mm -hmm. like environmental project and it's and this and it and it varies right it's writing articles it's going to dc and lobbying it's actually going to these places and having adventures and then like the selfish side of me wants to go to these places just because I get to go on these awesome trips that aren't just about climbing. Like I did right. one of my favorite trips ever was to the Arctic national wildlife refuge a few years ago to uh, advocate for the place. But I also got to go on this incredible like pack rafting climbing trip to the area and just travel through the zone and take, bring photographers and bring back like incredible pictures of mm-hmm. wolves that we saw from a few feet away, you know, stuff like this. And then you bring those to Congress and you show them to the politicians and you're like, the dialogue from the oil companies is that this is wasteland. Here's proof. This is not wasteland. Right, right, this right. is like some of the yeah, most incredible, yeah, like some of the, yeah, it's like some of the most pristine wilderness we have left. And so, you know, if they get to hear that directly from somebody who was just there and hearing these adventure stories, it's pretty powerful. And I find it actually to be quite fun to do that. Do you involve your kids in this? Yeah. 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 I mean, somewhat. I mean, we teach them about right, them. Right. Like they, it's funny. They make these, political statements sometimes just and you realize how much of what you say they understand right they hear like we have this incredible picture of this wolf that austin sidak took like staring staring at us from like a few feet away it's like this giant picture that we framed and put in our living room and our kids see that picture and they're like we can't kill the wolf's home you know (laughs) they're like we got it we you know they they know that we're the daddy's trying to do what he can to protect protect these places mm-hmm. and they think it's cool yeah that's awesome yeah i mean i'm always looking for other cool issues like tongas national forest is another big one that i'm into right now so that's something that the listener should be sort of looking out for in the future what's that i mean it's this massive national forest area that goes from like haynes alaska all along the coast all these islands and it's got tons of old growth logging and it's just getting logged mm-hmm. still like old growth is seems like something we shouldn't be doing anymore and it's and it was this thing that was protected under clinton and then and then trump rolled back this this thing called the roadless rule where they weren't allowed to build roads anymore i think clinton in, like enacted the roadless rule where you couldn't build roads there so you couldn't access the old growth anymore and then trump rolled it back and then biden put it back in place but a lot of the logging is happening from container ships and it's all getting shipped overseas. And um, it's the 
it's one of the most biodiverse regions. It's the biggest temperate rainforest in North America. And when you start to like learn all these areas, you realize that we've, we've really heavy handedly affected most of what we have. And so we really need to save these pockets. And this is in my mind, one of the most beautiful places that we've got left. Yeah. So that's not so much a climbing one. No, there's great climbing there. Oh, really? Um, yeah. There's, uh, if you've seen the Alpinist, right. The mountain that Mark Mark Andre Leclerc died on is okay. in Tongass. Right. The skiing around Haynes, Alaska, is in Tongass. There's lots of really great climbing. Oh, cool. Most of it's been explored is up high. It's like high elevation alpine climbing on these big granite spires. But there's also coastal sea cliffs. Some of the best, some of the biggest salmon runs in the world. Sea kayaking, you know, great. There's whales. There's there's surfing there. There's climbing. There's incredible fishing. Like. It's yeah, it's a really cool place. Interesting. All right. Well, um it's getting cold in here. <laughs> <laughs> I got my warm jacket on. <laughs> We're actually in Tommy's van. Um in Estes Park in the winter. Yeah, We're no heat blown. because it's too loud. It's too loud, yeah. We got to we're sacrificing our toes for uh, for decent sound. That's, that's how right. that's how important this is. Actually my feet are quite cold. Yeah. Um yeah, let's go back to climbing. You know, I I kinda did like a greatest hits of of the last five years since, since you were last on the, on the show, you even just, uh, you just cranked out some incredible root and, or a second ascent of some incredible root in Red Rock with Alex. Um, so you're still getting after it. So yeah, I mean, there's been a little bit of a shift, but it seems like you're still going strong. So what's going on with your climbing? I mean, climbing time is more elusive than I'd like it to be, but I feel All like right. I'm figuring out the balance. I'm figuring right. out how to like, focus on the things I really want to focus on and kind of outsource other things. And so I'm actually getting a fair amount of climbing time recently, but I've, I, I'm not at a point where I'm like ready to take on giant projects still. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. climbing is kind of like my food, right? I got to get out there and get my, right. get my little serving as much as possible. So I go climbing, you know, five days a week still, and I love training. So I'm always training, you know, it seems like once or twice a year I go on some little adventure with Honold and that always produces some sort of like sending of some sort right. that's just what he does this spring i wanted to go and try magic line in yosemite because mm-hmm. it was going to be a family trip but then covid got crazy and right. my family couldn't come so i ended up going there by myself i had five days to work on magic line and actually got quite close to doing it so i actually ended up taking a 40 foot ground fall <laughs> which happens to everybody on that route oh okay turns out. all right <laughs> but i figured out how to make it safe and so i'm gonna go back and and do that and um there's tons of new climbing in the flat irons here that matt samet has been developing and so i'm really into that these days and so uh, yeah there's like this there's like always this climbing that i'm just out doing because it makes me happy and right. that's what i love um the bigger expedition type trips i feel like are going to be more like advocacy like environmentally focused trips but in this way that involves you know, big adventure and lots of suffering, but maybe not like hard number grades. I don't, I don't seem to be focusing on that as much on big expeditions anymore. I mean, it's funny because it's like, I feel like it's almost like we are, are, I mean, and, and with Honol too, and, and, a, and a lot of other adventure climbers that we all admire, like we are, we're the ones who are like, come on, like, what do you got? <laughs> like, what's next? Like, how are you going to wow us again? You know? Yeah. Um, do you ever feel like that out there in the ether? Like, oh, yeah, everybody. Your next big thing? Yeah, I think after the Donwall, that's the most common question I got. Like, what's like, next? What, what are you going to do next? Yeah. What's the Donwall part two? You know? I want I want, to, I want that experience again. And um, 
I would say I still do aspire to like have something grab me in that way that I can't say no to it, but it almost like just has to happen. Like you can't force it to happen. And that just hasn't happened in a little while. And I'm for a while, like that, that brought me anxiety sort of like, I felt like I had to have that. But these days I'm, I'm kind of just settling into it. It's fine. Like I'm open to it. I'm sort of looking for it, but I'm really excited to just be living life and trying to be a good dad and trying to do my environmental work. And, you know, my job is like incredibly diverse these days and I get to be around great people and I'm I'm pretty happy with that. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Tommy for having me up to the house in Estes Park. Another extreme interview, not unlike the one with Malik, where we were outside getting snowed on. In this case, we were in a very windy, cold night in Estes in his van without the heater going because the heater is pretty loud. Anyway, hope you appreciate the sacrifice. So where do you find out more about Tommy Caldwell? One of the other endearing things about Tommy is his media is terrible. He's got an Instagram account. I just looked at it. There was a post like six days ago and then from the middle of February and then from the beginning of February and then, you know, six weeks before that. So uh, he's not banging it out over there on social media. Uh, I have no idea if he has a Twitter. I hope not. My worldview would be shattered, frankly, if Tommy Caldwell had a TikTok. (laughs) Oh, please, no. Um, his website, he does TommyCaldwell.com is a website. There's this fantastic picture right on the cover of his nub, of his sawed-off finger, which is part of the legend of Tommy Caldwell. But as with most blogs in this post-social media world, his blog is a little bit out of date, although there's some good stuff on there. There's something from 2020. Anyhow, of course, the push is out there, and you guys should check out the push. Bring it back to the bestseller list. Was it on the bestseller list? I have no idea. Should have been. Also, hey, look at that. There's a new Real Rock Caldwell Honold film coming up in Real Rock 16 about their link up in Rocky Mountain National Park. What would a Real Rock be without those dudes? Am I right? Enough of my yakking. Have fun out there. It's springtime. Man, it's springtime. But of course, you're probably a little rusty unless you've been ice climbing, some crazy person. So if you have only been climbing in the gym all winter, and remember, the out-of-doors are full of all sorts of variables you don't have inside the gym, including the fact that you have to set up your Grigri yourself. So please, check your knot, check your belayer, use proper signals, but not too many. Don't blab your way up a route. causes problems. Nobody knows what the hell you're talking about. And of course, check your knots. <laughs> I feel like a little bit of a sellout at times, mm. and but I'm becoming less that way. Right. Like, especially with all the opportunity that's come because of the rise of climbing in right. a way. Like, in some ways, the pure way to, like, the most purest sort of viewpoint on that would be to 
shun all that and push it away a little bit like Mark Andre, you know, right. like be like, I don't want to have anything to do that. But once you like have a family and stuff and you have all this opportunity coming at you, if you were to say no to it, it almost feels like you're betraying dereliction of duty. Yeah. Dereliction of duty. You're yeah, like to your sh- family. Totally. Like if I can actually send my kids to a good college because of my climbing, like why would right. I freaking do that? You so know? either accept it or go get a real job. Yeah. You, you need to provide. Yeah. So yeah, the providing is the important part, and so if you can do it that way, yeah, yeah. No, I get it. But but you know, we 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 came from an era of even you had it. You had a foot when you were younger in an era of like you don't. That's not how you you climb. You purely from your heart, and like any sort of compensation becomes. You know, you were an early guy that took up took up sponsorship. Yeah, but still. You know, we were in Colorado, like we're in Colorado in the nineties. Like, yeah, it's just the way things were, you know, or the, of like, you just, you gotta be tough and not <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's still out there. It's totally. still in the ether of climbing. I, th- I think it's dying yeah. quicker than I would like it to. Honestly, like I would love for my kids to have to be full on bags for a certain part of their life. Like, I think that's a really good way to be like, it teaches you a ton, you know? <laughs> And so <laughs> you put it, just put it in a trust that you, <laughs> you can't have this until you've, you've spent two years in a van. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> and not, not a van like the one we're in. Right. Exactly. Like, like a shitty one. <laughs> like a shitty van. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. I mean, you know, the dirtbag dream is, has its moments. Yeah. As long as you don't hold on to it too long. Totally. Yeah. <laughs>